stories are the software of our lives. We as the humans, the hardware, need an upgrade of our spiritual software, our stories, our wisdom more than ever. Each of these episodes will be like a performance psychologist, philosopher, religious professor, and a monk walked into a bar and had a conversation. It's just me on this podcast because that's the weird conversation that's happening in my brain. I'll be drawing from other wisdom traditions, but each episode will be drawing from one main tradition, the Bible. I'll be drawing from 40 stories. And as I look at these 40 stories, I'll be distilling it down so that you can find the wisdom you need to help upgrade your story wherever you find yourself. The polycontemplative approach is not dedicated to any belief system or ideology. It's an invitation for all of us to pay attention to wisdom that's been passed down our way for thousands of years and learn from it in a new, fresh way today. Something I've really been fascinated by and interested in for a long time now is how adults and youth grow and develop, whether it's younger, Eric Erickson, you know, how adolescence and, and identity development is happening at that age, uh, Piaget, or older uh, adults, whether they're, you know, looking at Robert Keegan's studies, Fowler, as he applied it to religious development. I mean, I'm leaving off all kinds of names and uh, Adler and on and on. There's so many people that uh, have taken a look at this and, and even Nietzsche as camel lion child and said, okay, there's more wherever you're at, there's more. And they've tried to explain a progression of that. And, and I've learned so much from a lot of those approaches. I'm also fascinated by how a lot of those voices see a pattern that they needed so it's more specific almost to their personality development also. And for me, I'm, I'm concerned with finding, like, is there a meta pattern that walks us through uh, all of these progressions and, and growth, you know, stages? Because here's the thing, you know, for me, none of this, as we go through this project, polycontemplative for the pecans. None of this is about something that's a discovery uh, of something new. It's really a rediscovery of what has been tested, tried, and true throughout human development through thousands of years. So many of the current crises we face right now, people argue over so many things that biology and evolution are just going to win. They're just going to keep playing out no matter what the cul-de-sacs we get caught in for a little bit. And and the same is true for the pattern that I want to show you in today's episode. Because here's the thing. I think for some of us, we want to know, like, how far can we go? How much can we grow as humans? How, how far can we develop? We're honest about the fact that there's a deep potential for evil in humanity, we also know that there's a deep potential for good. I don't know about you and your own life, but I have seen changes in my life that sometimes I'm like, whoa, that is awesome. And I've still got a long way to go. And there are times I get frustrated at myself and impatient with myself at changes I still want to see happen. I also know a lot of humans don't change. They kind of find something to lock into. And, and as they lock into that, they get stuck there. And so you could think about the way people develop and the way they grow, almost like it's it's like a box or a worldview. And and it doesn't mean that the box is bad or the worldview is bad. It's just what they exist in and what they live in. And the box serves you. You don't serve it, hopefully. But at some point, if you're honest, the circumstances of life take you to a place 
where the box just isn't working anymore. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, I've seen so many people transition through different boxes where, you know, a lot of times the box you're given when you uh, are, are born, that's the one that you may keep for your whole life. Whatever your parents' view on, you know, religion and, and science and the world was, that was yours. And then for some of you, you, you pushed against that box and maybe you chose a second box and it was a little bit more reactive. And then you picked a third box. I mean, this is very few people do this where you're getting out of that reactive box into something more that you're uh, thinking about how you want to make meaning. And all I want to show you in, in this pattern today is there's nothing more powerful and more important than how you choose to make your meaning, how you consciously think about what it means to construct your meaning. And when we understand this, we can cooperate with the process of development in our lives rather than fight against it. So how are we going to get there? What are we going to do to understand this pattern? Well, I want to draw your attention to a progression and, and a story. And this story would have been told around the fire way less than some of what we've covered so far to this point, because it would have been, it would have been newer relative to human history. And I'm drawing out of Luke 3 and 4 and a little bit from 5 in this story, because I want you to see the progression of Jesus. Now, what's weird when I say this? Because I know that I'm really excited for this, you know, conversation to serve people in lots of different ways. So it's not committed to an ideology. It's not committed to a belief system. And, and for some of you, it can be like, wait, Jesus progressing, uh, you know, Jesus real, not real. I don't, I don't want to think about any of that right now. I just want to look at what we see recorded as a progression. For some of you, it might be like, wait a second, progression? No. That, you know, Jesus is perfect. If that might be your, your worldview. And what I want you to see in this progression is a pattern, a pattern of growth and development. So the story starts this way. He's being baptized. And in baptism, there's this affirmation. And the affirmation is a voice that says, this is my son, I'm so pleased with him, or you are my son. I'm so pleased with you. Now, I wasn't there, so I'm not sure whether it was direct or indirect like that. Um, but as we see it recorded, what we see is an affirmation of what? You are my son. Identity. Now, when I think about this word identity, we got to pause right here real quick. Right now, we're in this uh, you know, mental trap with our words as a society because we've made identity a certain specific part of who you are. In other words, it's like whatever my race or my gender or my creed or my sexuality is, you know, this is my identity. And so what we've got now as a result of that is identity politics, where you get all these factions, these mimetic tribes forming around whatever is the specific identity marker tends to be that you are most threatened in, invalidated in, feeling victimized in. And then you make that one small part of you, all of you. I mean, this is why it's hard to be around people that of either extreme, extreme left, extreme right, that take one specific identity marker and make that all of who they are. And rather than throwing all that out, this pattern's going to show us that identity is more than a specific marker, that some of you 
S-O-M-E is not the sum of you, S-U-M, that you can take any specific marker of your life and that's a part of you, but it's not all of you. You know, Maya Angelou has this quote and I'm doing it, you know, from memory here. So I'm messing it up a little bit, but she says, I'm black, I'm Samoan, I'm African, I'm a woman, I'm, I'm all of these, but none of these is all of me. And, and the big idea here is that there's more to your identity than any specific marker. Now, the reason that's so important is because right now at the beginning of this story, this progression, we see you are my son. I'm so pleased with you. What that meant for us in reading this story and trying to extract the wisdom out of it now is to put our minds in this place of what it was like for this person to be wrestling with who he is, his place in the world, how he makes meaning, you know, is he reading passages, thinking of something about himself from the Hebrew scriptures? And, and, and if we're honest, he's struggling and he's going, am I crazy? I, I think something about myself and I don't know if it's true or not. And then he has this experience at this baptism. You are my son. I'm so pleased with you. So there's an affirmation of identity. That's the key thing I want you to notice first. Then we catch up Luke 4, verse 1. It says, this full of the spirit, <laughs> full of the Holy Spirit. And we could talk about what the term Holy Spirit means in a minute. Full of the spirit, he was led into the wilderness. The spirit led him into the wilderness. A lot like when uh, Neo gets led to Morpheus by Trinity. See the feminine, and, and some say, and there's disagreement on this, that you can even see the etymology of the wording that's used in the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament for spirit and and see it's this feminine dimension that the feminine is leading the person, the main point, uh, the center point, the main character in the story to the trickster, to, in this story, the devil. And this is a part of how the pattern plays out. Now, here's what I want you to not miss. Where is the place that the main character is being led to meet with the trickster. It's the wilderness. The wilderness. See, the wilderness is a place where your box stops working. The wilderness is a place where I thought I would do this, 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 and this, and I would get this result, and now that hasn't occurred. The wilderness is a place where we experience disillusionment. The wilderness is a place where we lose heart. The wilderness is a place where we're struggling with something and it's our, it's our thought that we're ruminating on when we go to sleep. It's our waking thought. It's something that pervades, uh, is pervasive to the horizon of our experience. It dominates what we're wrestling with. The wilderness is when we feel the reality of how much we don't control. The wilderness is when we feel uh, the lack of what we've developed within ourselves up to this point to get us through what is the next hard step. And what I can tell you is, if you understand your story and if you understand this story, you'll start to see that the wilderness is a, is a fulcrum moment. The wilderness is where everything can start to change. But for so many people, it doesn't. Why? Because they they live in a denial of their whatever their wilderness experience is. It makes me think of Carl Sagan's quote where he was talking about he was sad to see so much sliding back into superstition in our society. 
very prescient quote in one of his books, the wilderness is where you stay, if you're not embracing what you're going through, it's where you stay committed to a false reality when that box isn't working anymore. What's really weird about this is is for some of you watching this or, or listening through the podcast, you could have had some kind of spiritual experience and you could be embracing spirituality and, and your science box is good and it got you here, but but you realize science really isn't a worldview. It's an approach. It's an approach to just continually upgrading how we view reality. But yet science can't explain everything about the mystical or the spiritual. There's no answer for some of the questions that we have. But it also doesn't mean that we have to throw everything out and stop paying attention to how uh, what we learn about our world has to be changed when we get new evidence. Wherever you find yourself in the wilderness, whether it's wrestling with big questions, just circumstances that are troubling you, the wilderness is, is the fulcrum. Now, how do you recognize what's happening in the wilderness and where the real change can come from? Well, that's where the story takes us. Now, before we get into this, we've got to understand that there's a real struggle happening here. And this is why I introduced this episode with some of those comments about, I want you to suspend what you think about Jesus for a minute and just engage the story with me. And I know that's not easy. It's not easy because, you know, we have a stimulus and then we respond. And what happens for us is when we can learn to not just respond reactively to some of the things that I'm bringing up, we can start to consider it. And I'm going to say more about that in a second. So we find in the story that in the wilderness, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. And then he has these three temptations from the trickster, three temptations from the devil. Now, if you're like me and in this project for me is about looking at these stories of wisdom from multiple angles, I start to ask some questions. I mean, you know, I've, I've walked through some situations with people that had some experiences that were concerning. I've also walked through situations with people that had experiences like this that were life-changing and powerful for them. And as I break this down for you, I want you to start to think about what it means for Jesus to have this experience. He didn't eat for 40 days and the story actually records he was hungry. Well, of course he was. Why would the story have to record that? Because by the time this was written down, there would have already been some traditions developing that would have emphasized points like he was not hungry because they didn't understand how this story was progressing and developing. Now, in another episode, maybe the next one, I'm going to just look at Jesus as a person and a concept. Right now, I don't want to do that. I want to just look at the character in the story. And the character in the story, he's hungry. He hasn't eaten eaten for 40 days. And then he has these experiences where he sees these temptations happening with this devil or this trickster. Now, that's an important thing to you know, pause on. When I think about what it means to have these kinds of experiences, there's really You could think about it like four ways to have them. One is deprivation, which is what's happening in this story. You know, loss of sleep or food can bring on these mystical experiences. Number two, the other way you have it is it just comes upon you. Plenty of people throughout human history have just been living their lives and then then they're experiencing something that would almost feel otherworldly or completely feel otherworldly. Number three, the other way that that you see throughout human history this has happened is through plant medicines, through 
you know, through some kind of plant medicine that facilitated an experience. The fourth one is through the active use of your mind, through meditation, which is like the emptying of your mind, or contemplation, which is the harnessing of your imagination. Now, as a person and and as an experimenter, you know, I started meditating and contemplating, and I'm distinguishing between those two, uh, and I can break down meditation more, but I think that'll slow us too much, uh, slow us down too much for this episode. But as a person, I've experimented in meditation and contemplation for, you know, 24 years. And when I was in college, I did experiment with meditation and contemplation. There was a period of time for about a year where I did it almost every day for an hour and a half to three hours. For years after that, I did it for at least an hour. And then for for about the last 12 years, I've been experimenting a lot with actively working on developing my ability to relax into my imagination and, and contemplate. And I can't say enough about all the mystical traditions that have affirmed over and over and over what it's like to have these experiences. They're, they're, they're possible. They happen. They're real. And what's happening for so many people is we're not harnessing the human technology that we have within to live the full human experience. We just, we just don't use these anymore. You know, for some people, the most experience they've had with meditation is any kind of like focused meditation where they get into a, a state of flow and work. Or, or maybe they've got something where they're, they're doing something like a mantra, the religions that have repetitious prayers in them, where they're creating this rhythm in their brain with, with meditation. And, and some have learned how to just do some open monitoring. They just empty their mind. And all of those can be very effective and powerful. But what's also powerful is contemplation, to relax into your imagination, to learn to let the right brain get one second ahead of the left brain, and and to let it unfold and to go with it. See, Viktor Frankl in his Search for Meaning talked about in between stimulus and response is growth and freedom. And that's what's so powerful about where the human race has come up to this point. Because what we've learned to do is use logic and rationality to break the stimulus response pattern. Now, I think we're losing our way on that some. And what's dangerous right now is as we lose the ground we've taken with logic and rationality, you're going to find people that are not going to know how to help us all progress to what I think is going to be the next stage where we want to go as humans, that it's not just about the pause in between stimulus and response for logic and rationality, but instead we learn how to pay attention to what's happening on the inside of us as we get free of the the narratives that are driving us in insecure ways, as we get free of, go back to PC episode one, the shame that drives us, then we learn to follow a, a feeling. There's something that we can pay attention to. Feelings become clues and messages and signals to grow us and lead us. Because of the wilderness experiences that I've been through and because of the transformation they've brought to me, what happens is I start to, I start to not be driven by a narrative that tells me I got to go prove who I am to people by how I live. I got to go prove who I am by my performance. I've got to go hide away from my vulnerabilities. Instead, I just get to show up and live my truth. And because there's no internal Remember we said that it shows up as projection. There's no internal voice trying to get me to project to others. And then because there's no belief beneath that, shame driving me 
that there's a pure experience of, of knowing myself and who I am, then I get to follow what's happening inside of me. And why am I randomly thinking about that person? I should probably text them. Why do I have that occurring thought in my head? I should probably pay attention to that issue or address it. And what we find in this wilderness story that's so powerful is the exact process that's used to take you from being under the influence and pressure of shame to being shame-free. How? Well, it happens in these temptations. And as we look at these temptations, you're going to see how these temptations, these tests play out in your life. Now, the first temptation is this. The trickster comes and says, hey, if you are the son, prove it and turn this stone to bread. And that would have been a temptation because he's hungry. He needs to turn this stone to bread. He hasn't eaten and he's struggling. Now, there's a question I have here. And again, my brain switches out of these different modes as I'm reading a story like this. Like, so obviously he thinks he has the power to turn this stone to bread. Hmm. That's interesting. Either way, he says, if you are the son, turn this stone to bread. Now, the response, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what's, what's really transformative about this test here and the way that you see this temptation playing out is he says, I don't live based on proving what I can do, turn this stone to bread. I'm defined by who the father says I am. And the father just told me I'm his son. In other words, I have an identity not defined by what I do. I have an identity defined by who I am. When I think about these tests and what's happening here, I see at the core of this test, it's to take from a moment. It's to take from a moment what it can give you. You're going to lose the daily battle for the wholeness and bigness of your identity when you reduce the small moments down to what they can give you. See, the reason right now that we're so leaderless and the reason right now we have so much struggle, I think, worldwide, globally, is because so many of our leaders haven't ever faced their wilderness tests in an authentic way so that they know how to show up to a moment to give more than take. We, need to, we don't need leaders who are screaming for the insecurity of their identity, who need to be validated, because what that creates is institutions who keep people connected to them so that they can keep their malformed identities affirmed. Go back to episode two. And the real test that happens for all of us when, when we're in the wilderness, when our box isn't working, is are we going to go out into our roles and into our relationships and try to make them give us something so we can feel better about who we are because this wilderness is beating us down and tearing us up? Or are we going to pass this test to not try to take from this moment, to not try to steal from this moment the validation that we can get? If you really want to become aware of this in your own life, just notice how you engage someone. Are you engaging to notice them and give something to them? Are you, are you engaging that conversation, that conversation or that relationship to try to get something from them? So many times we're saying to each other, will you see me? Will you hear me? Will you feel me? Will you know me? Will you recognize this? Will you validate this? And this is us failing the first test of the wilderness over and over and over. Now, I'm not saying any of this to beat you up. In fact, if that's what you would take away from this moment right now, 
you're not going to be able to grow and develop as much as you can. See, I think one of the worst things right now that we've done in psychological development over the last 150 years is we've taken this concept called ego. And what we've done is we've made the ego the enemy. So clearly, you and I can think of leaders that are full of ego. And because they are full of ego, they are dangerous. Very easy to imagine that. But here's the thing. You know, when people in the West have for the last four or 500 years said over and over and over, pride is our greatest problem. You know, I just don't think that's the case. I think, I think our, our life of privilege and blessing, and this is for so many people in the first world, uh, has led us down a destructive path there. Here's why I don't think pride is the greatest problem. I've never met a secure narcissist. I've never met a narcissistic person who's secure in who they are. It's the insecurity of their ego. (laughs) It's actually the fear that they have, the inferiority that they feel that makes them show up like they do. Pride isn't our greatest problem. In a society that has forgotten about the power of shame, they become guilt-obsessed. If we can understand really, no matter how blessed we are, no matter how much privilege we have, that shame is the real struggle, then we understand the battle for identity is over a false belief about who we are or understanding the truth that we're, that we're not defined by our performance, that our belonging within ourselves doesn't hinge on how accepted we are by others, that our ability to go within and find the joy of who we are isn't determined by externally how much adventure we have in our lives. That, that our ability to know our internal strength isn't connected to how much power we have over others. That our ability to know deep in the core of who we are, that we are never separated from love, is not connected to how much people have to depend on us. So what so many of us have done is we've externalized our identity struggle. We've externalized the identity battle that the wilderness tries to take us into. And we keep trying to turn our stones into bread as we try to get validation and affirmation from our roles and our relationships. And pride isn't the problem. It's shame. Shame is the struggle. And so when we see this first temptation and we see it at its core, we see the struggle that we all face. I mean, if I'm going to post something on social media, am I seeking to inspire or am I seeking to try to get some affirmation? You are worthy, Chris. You perform. You're awesome. I could have the exact same post, but they're coming from different motives. And when I post one from the overflow of, I hope I inspire others, or one from a place of, I hope they see me and validate me and think I'm awesome, I participate in either making the world better or making it worse. Now, I'm not saying I post everything with 100% altruism. I'm just saying I try to check my mode of at least 51% secure in who I am, that the actions that I'm doing are coming from a place that I'm not trying to turn a stone into bread, that I'm not trying to be fed by something external, but internal, I learn to find the food that is me being secure in my identity. And that's what the wilderness moments give you as a gift. The second test, and you see this, is the second temptation, is that um, Jesus is going to worship the trickster or the devil, and then he's going to get that worship. But that by participating in this 
that Jesus is going to get this glory, this fame, this attention, this love, this validation. And Jesus, the way that he beats this test, he's, he says, worship the Lord your God only. Now, I think of David Foster Wallace's speech about uh, the fish in the water. If you've never heard it, you got to check it out. But he says this, that we, that we all worship. We just get to choose what we worship. My way of wording that, and I think this is the most powerful way that we can understand the struggle for today. We get to choose what defines our identity. We get to choose what our center is. And you can make anything the center of your meaning. I mean, that really is what's changed so much about the world. For most of human history, you were given your box. You were given your meaning. What do I mean? You know, for at least... Um, except for the last maybe 200 years, you lived within the relative space you grew up in. You didn't travel very far outside of that. So by nature of growing up with your family, your family said, okay, here's the box, here's the worldview, here's how you make meaning. They gave you an identity. They told you who you are and how you fit in. They gave you a worldview. You were able to make meaning out of that. And then they gave you your place in that. They gave you a role to fulfill They gave you your mission, if you will. They gave you what it meant to know what you're about, what the rites and codes and rituals were of this society. They also gave you a hierarchy, a status uh, of relationships, a strata of relationships, and where you fit in in that. And then over the last 150 years, as we've become more mobile, people have gone, whoa, not only could this be my worldview, but this could be my worldview. And now as, as like my children grow up in an age of social media and exposure to the whole world, there's an infinite combination of possibilities for constructing an identity. And that is empowering and beautiful and amazing and terrifying and fraught with danger and has so much potential for pits for us to fall into. And this is the battle that we're facing right now. And what I want you to understand is that we're all worshiping something and you get to choose what your center is more than ever. And, and yes, we can think of the obvious things like money and sex and power and all of those things that we choose to make the center of who we are. It's not that, you know, we're so terrible and awful because we make those things our center. It just shows the longing that we have to have some way to construct meaning. And then some people come along and go, you know, the best way to construct meaning is to say it's all an illusion, that it's all made up, that nothing is real, that we have this life and this is it. And and that might be what's helpful for you. And I would say to you as we walk through this polycontemplative journey, I want you to find a worldview that helps you be happy in who you are move with a laser-focused mission and progress and advance the relationships around you. And whatever does that is beautiful. But when it comes to what we pick as our center, you see the battle here. What's going to be the center? And so what's happening for us in the wilderness is we're redefining what our center is. And as you wrestle with that and think about that, you know, for me, the way that I process this is I want something at my center that's an inexhaustible, endless resource in form and in formlessness has in in mystical traditions it would be considered or talked about like a void there's there's such expansive infinite emptiness and for me it's a both and thing and i actually do see in many traditions around the world even the christian tradition and the christian mystical tradition tradition is they've considered the apophatic and cataphatic 
visions of God, a both and reality there. Now, I know I threw some stuff at you that you're going to want to go check out as a pecan. Some of you already know about it. So I embrace in this second test the reality that there's an, there's an infinite source that I don't understand fully, that I can relate to the form of it, even the forms of some of what I grew up with and have grown out of, and the formlessness of it, that there's no edge There's no boundary. And so when I'm considering making my insecure needs the center of my existence, that's how I know that I'm off. And in the first test, I'm going to be proving something to the world by what I do. In the second test, I could be proving or hiding whenever I make something the center. In the third test, I tend to mostly hide. So here's what happened in the third test. The trickster tells Jesus if he throws himself off this cliff that he'll be rescued, that he's going to be taken care of. And it's a temptation to find a shortcut, to not take the hard path that is in front of him, to not take the dangerous path that's going to require so much. And this is a way that we really hide. See, I can always recognize someone's insecure in their identity, including myself, and I still do it. We're all on a journey by how they prove or hide. And the, and the temptation here, the test here, is to hide, to test life. We've all done this before, where we've said, okay, I'm going to do this, and if this good thing happens, then I know I'm on the right path. Or I'm going to do this, and if this bad thing happens, I'm not on the right path. It could be as simple as sitting in a meeting and go, okay, if he calls on me, I'll speak up. If, if, if she looks at me and asks what I think, then I'll share what I really think. What are we doing? We're, we're testing life. That's not a helpful filter for us. There are times we may need to like consider things and check things out. But I want you to see that most of us are hiding from the fullness of who we can become, the fullness of our identity that expresses itself into our thoughts and our opinions and our beliefs and our, and our passions and our emotions. And listen, I don't mean that you've got to run around being opinionated, taking everybody down a notch. That's just an insecure identity. That's falsely believing that dignity is a zero-sum game. What I do know is that you have within you right now feelings and emotions, and those are clues and signals to where you need to go. And as you pass, pass these tests of proving and hiding and the testing of your identity, you emerge from them knowing who you are. You break the stimulus response chain of reactivity of proving and hiding. Logic and rationality begin to guide you. The next step after that is to let the right brain get back into the lead and to follow those feelings, to follow those clues, to follow those signals. And where are they going to take you? They're going to take you to the clarity of your mission. As you pass these three tests, you move from the security of your identity to the clarity of your mission. And so what happens is Jesus in Luke 4 faces like three moments with his mission. One, he gets up and reads from the scroll. And as a pecan, you need to go check out. He quotes from something in the Hebrew scripture, but he leaves off a passage. And he leaves off a part of the passage about, I see this progression in the Old Testament, a progression of understanding God. And part of their progression of understanding God is to offload their consciousness into their concept of God. And they get to a point that they see God as vindictive and angry and pissed off and scary. And so I see what Jesus is doing in multiple points where he's like, you think that sacred 
that the source that God is like this. No, God is like this. And so what he does when he quotes from the passage in Isaiah in Luke 4, when he stands up and reads from the scroll, he leaves off the parts that don't represent the progression of human consciousness. He's saying, you thought God was like this, but God is like this. You thought God was like this, but instead he stands in the road and waits for the prodigal to come home and doesn't let the prodigal finish the speech, but just embraces him. That love at its source can't be anything else other than unconditional. Another example of this clarity of mission is that they get upset at him because he's changing the conversation about God and he's claiming to be a conduit for that. He's saying, hey, I'm the Messiah and I'm here and they get mad and they try to push him off a cliff, but they can't. When you become secure in your identity, you move from being insecure to being the iconic version of who you are. It's only you. There's only one of you and there's nobody that can stop your mission. You just keep advancing and no matter what happens to you, it can't be stopped. You, when you're unshameable in your identity, you become unstoppable in your mission. And so what happens when you become unstoppable in your mission, you show up in the world in a way of morality and ethics and values that you actually shame the shameable because you are unshameable. Let me explain this. What do you do with a group of people who are marginalized considered backwater people oppressed and persecuted when Roman soldiers make them carry their stuff for a mile and they tax you and you lose your children and your farms to their taxes. You lose your livelihood. You're oppressed, oppressed, oppressed. And then a Roman soldier says, you're going to carry this stuff a mile. And then this crazy teacher says, I don't want you just to carry it one mile. I want you to carry it a second mile. And I want you to turn the other cheek and I want you to pray for your enemies. You actually shame the shameable. You don't beat shame through violence. You beat shame through being unshameable. And as you're unshameable, you're unstoppable in your mission. And as you're unstoppable in your mission, you're going to face pressures because what happened to him is he's, he's doing healings and people start coming to him and his the end of Luke 4, it shows this rhythm that he's been healing all night and he's got to be tired and he's exhausted and they're bringing family to him and they're going villages over and bringing family over because this guy's going to help what you've been suffering with. And he says, I got to go. I can't stay here. If a group of people were begging for you to help them in some way, would you and I have the center the strength of center, the moral center to say, that's not my mission. I'm not doing that. I'm going here. Pretty wild when you look at it, but he's unstoppable in his mission, even against the pressure of others. And as he lives unstoppable in his mission, he's just not falling into this activist guilt. I got to carry a million causes because that's exhausting. And he moves to calling people directly to follow him. It's the building of his community. See, when you're secure in your identity and it overflows into clarity in your mission, it will result in the building of your community. It's the active building of the people around you that you're actively going to people and saying, let's go do this. And if you can see this meta pattern, then what you can do is you can lay it over any worldview. As you work on your meaning, as you work on your worldview, as you think about who you are, 
how you show up in a place in this world and how you do relationships. Just a few questions for you. Is your current box serving you? What if there's more than you've ever considered before? What if the daily struggles of your vulnerabilities and stressors showed you a code that you could understand to how you were being tempted to prove or hide? As humans, we really do have common ancestors. As we've gotten to this point in human history over the evolution of thousands and tens of thousands and millions of years, we are here at a place where we share more in common than what separates us. And there's a million ways that you can build a worldview, infinite ways. And there are so many things you can choose to build your identity around. But what I would request of you in this episode, without ideology, without belief systems, is just to consider this pattern. Where might this pattern serve you as you push against the box, as you experience the disillusionment of wilderness? Where might you learn that you are not just about the building of your self-esteem? That's a current trap in our society. No, that I learn who I am from what I do that I separate my performance from my personhood, that I learn my identity, that it's bigger than my race, my gender, my creed, my sexuality, any of these markers, that it's somewhat ineffable, that I can't fully explain it, that it's not just about self-esteem because you know what? There are things in your life right now and there are things in my life right now. I'm not getting the results I want. I don't just build myself up with some artificial sense of self-esteem. No, I say my performance isn't where I want it to be. I want to grow and change. But that doesn't have to mean I have to feel bad about who I am. My identity is separate from my performance, that I can know me. And when I become unshameable in my identity, then I get to pay attention to what's good and bad in my mission. I'm unstoppable. What's working, I do it more where I need to focus, I cut out things that are even good. I'm not afraid to stare bad results in the face as I become unstoppable in the mission. And the trap that society falls in on this right now is just to think it's enough to, to be present. And being present is amazing and it's a gift, but we need to maintain two states. We're present, but we also have a vision of who we're becoming. Not just achieving, but becoming in character and as I become unshameable and then unstoppable, and then in community, I'm uncancelable. It's not about how many come against me. It's about me pouring myself into the people around me. What am I pouring into them? My mission that comes out of the security of my identity. And as we live in a world right now that is going to fracture probably into more and more mimetic tribes for a while, what if we consider this pattern as a way of understanding our growth and development? Thanks for being here. I know this is a lot to think about. Keep thinking on these things. Keep searching. Peace. Hey, thank you for being here and listening to this episode. Please feel free to rate and share the podcast with others. More importantly, I want to invite you to come to SightShift.com, S-I-G-H-T-Shift.com. There, 
I'm obsessively focused on helping people with three problems. Number one, how to work on their worldview and make their own meaning. Number two, how to find their place in the world and move with a laser-focused mission. And number three, transcend status games and build the healthy community they want to be a part of. Through our platform of content, certified coaches, and community, we are transformational guides to help you find your wisdom. Join us at SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, Shift.com.